me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 45 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I am your host and fellow Metallica fan, my name is Brandon. On this episode, I am joined by my guest, the founder and CEO of the legendary record label Metal Blade Records, Brian Slagel. Brian and I talk about all things Metallica, from meeting Lars Ulrich and James Heffield, to getting them on Metal Massacre, to his favorite concert memory with the band, to his thoughts on their latest album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. We cover it all pretty much and so much more, including a little bit about running Metal Blade and what he looks for when signing bands. So this is a very in-depth conversation that I think is a must-hear for all Metallica fans. So let's jump right into it. Here's my conversation with Brian Slagel. My guest today is the founder and CEO of the legendary record label Metal Blade Records. He also played a big part in Metallica history when he released the compilation album Metal Massacre, featuring the song Hit the Lights. Please welcome to Metallicast, Brian Slagel. Brian, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show and agreeing to do this. Not a problem. My pleasure. So I'm curious if you don't mind traveling back in time a little bit. Uh, for a moment, sort of where your interest in heavy music began? Well, when I was 11 years old, I mean, I grew up listening to music, but not, you know, anything in particular. But when I was 11, uh, one of my cousins played me Deep Purple's Machine Head album. And that completely changed my life. I, I was, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Whatever this was sounded just amazing to me. And the next day I went to a local record store, bought the album, brought it home, played it. Then about a week or so later, I was talking to my neighbor, and he said, oh, if you like Deep Purple, I should play you this band, Black Sabbath. And he played me, I think it was Sabbath, Blood Sabbath, and I was like, oh, yeah. my gosh. And I was pretty much hooked at that point. Awesome. That's my favorite Sabbath record. <laughs> Mine is Sabotage, but Sabbath Blood Sabbath is probably second to that. Yeah. I, the, the progression from the first sound to that one is just phenomenal, but still perfectly Sabbath. 100%. 100%. So you have this fandom, obviously, starts with Deep Purple, and then eventually you start your own fanzine. Can you go into about how all that came to be? Yeah, so I was uh, I was a big tape trader when I was when I was a kid. So I would tape you know live shows, and we trade them all around the world. Sure. So a friend of mine in uh, Sweden sent me an ACDC live tape uh, from somewhere in Sweden, and at the very end of it he said hey there's this new band called iron maiden that just put out this single over over here you might like it and he it was sound house tapes and he put that on right. there and I, and I just freaked out like oh my gosh <laughs> what is this and then i kind of went down the rabbit hole which is very difficult to do back you know you're talking about you know, 1980, sure yeah <clears throat> where there's no internet there's no nothing but i found out about sounds magazine and very luckily for me you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and, and we had a bunch of record stores there. And for some reason, one of the record stores carried this magazine. So I 
bought it and they were talking about this whole new wave of British heavy metal scene. And I just got fully into it and, you know, became pen pals with people in England and right. just got, just was mesmerized by the whole thing and got super into it. And at the time, there was nothing happening in the U.S. There was, you know, nobody knew about the scene that was happening over there. And it just sure. kind of frustrated me. But I, I had become friends with people who had fanzines in the U.K. And I thought, well, this is really cool. So I'm going to start my own fanzine in, in Los Angeles, California. No, nobody had done a, a heavy metal fanzine at that point. So I just right. did it for fun and it ended up actually being doing kind of okay, strangely enough. So the U.K. fanzines were really your go-to when it came to tape trading is that sort of how it all worked back in the day yeah i was i was trading with people all over the world i mean yeah a lot of stuff a lot of stuff in the u.s too but you know i was a big fan of you know all the you know priest and acdc and all you know all that european stuff so i had stuff from la and then i had uh, you know i had friends in cleveland and other places so we would just trade but i was trading with a lot of people in, in europe and they were the ones that turned me on to you know a lot of these bands Cool. So when is it that Lars Ulrich enters the mix? Is it before the fanzine? After the fanzine? Uh, what is the timeline? Um, it's a, I'm trying to remember now. I think it was right around right around the starting of the fanzine. Because okay. um, I, 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 I remember we, we well, well, my friend John Cronaris technically met him first at the parking lot right. of this place the country club in Reseda, california where michael schenker group had played and you know the story is lars is there wearing a saxon european t-shirt yeah. in 1980 in los angeles nobody knew who saxon was let alone had right. a European t-shirt so he ran up to him and <laughs> said you got me my friend brian so a couple of days later we're all hanging out talking about you know all this great heavy metal stuff so it was right about the same thing but he he had gone that summer basically the summer that i had started the fanzine he spent that whole summer in England going to shows and hanging out with Motorhead and all these things. Yeah, yeah. Kind of driving me crazy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Very jealous of that. <laughs> so what, what was, did he call you like, hey, I'm with uh, Brian Tatler right now. I'm with Lemmy. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, we would, you know, we would get calls. Obviously, no, none of us had a lot of money. It was not sure, cheap yeah. to call, but we did get a couple of calls. And I think one of them, he was, you know, he had just been in the studio with Motorhead and, you know, he had talked about, you know, meeting the Diamond Head guys. And of course, we were all huge Diamond Head fans. Sure. And the fact that he went over there and, and actually met a lot of these bands, I, I was my friend John and I were just blown away. Of course, we were yeah. very jealous because he's over there having this great time and we're like, you know, over here <laughs> in the L.A., you know, writing about it in a fanzine, but not yeah. much else we could do about it. But right. That was, that was, but that's, you know, fairly typical Lars. Like he always you know i mean i met i think it was like 16 when i met him and i was 18 and you know yeah. he when he said he was going to do something he generally made it happen which was pretty and we witnessed that many times over <laughs> years too, so the story goes lars goes off for that summer follows stocks whatever you want to call it diamond head motorhead and it kind of sees the inner workings of a band comes back to the states and wants to start a band do you remember him coming back and being like, "Hey guys, I'm 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 gonna do it. I'm gonna start a band." Do you remember it being a thing, or did it just sort of happen? Well, it's kind of funny because I, I remember we were at his at his uh, at his his parents' house one time. Yeah. He had a drum set in the corner, not put together, just all pieces there. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, "I'm gonna start a band." And I'm like, "Yeah, right, sure you are, Lars." You know, just laughing <laughs> that that's never gonna happen. <laughs> right. 
and but then and that was prior to him going to to England. I think when he was sure. there, that really inspired him to come back. I mean, he couldn't play or didn't know anything. Yeah. And so we had, so I had, so kind of fast forward a little bit, you know, he went over to Europe. I actually ended up getting my dream job and working at a record store, started bringing in all this heavy metal stuff from Europe and selling it in, in LA. And then people would come into LA and say, Hey, you know, there's heavy metal bands here in LA. I said, there are, I had, I had no idea. Yeah. So the first show I saw was Motley Crue and Rat at the Troubadour nice. on Wednesday for a dollar. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> so then I started seeing there's there's bands, you know, here here in LA. Sure. And while I was working at the at the record store, you know, Lars was off doing his thing. So we didn't see each other as much because he lived quite far from, from where I was. Okay. Uh, and I was completely engrossed in, in, in the record store. But you know, we talked yeah. and we'd see each other and then sure. you know, I got the idea for the compilation album based on what the New Wave of British Heavy Metal had done, the Metal for Mothers and all those mm -hmm. compilation albums. And I'd seen all these bands in L.A. And, and again, this is, you know, 1981. Nobody knew that, that these bands existed. It was right. it, 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 you know, basically a vacuum. If, if, you know, if I didn't write about it somewhere or, you know, I thought putting out a compilation, nobody would know these ever these bands ever existed. So when sure. I got that idea, that's when the, the famous phone call where uh, he said, <laughs> hey, if, uh, if I put together a band, can I be on your record? I said, sure. And that was the catalyst. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure all your listeners know, you know, him and James had – Jammed yeah. a couple of times, but nothing was really happening. But sure. in 1981, again, being on a record, having one song on a record was a big deal. So that of course, he yeah. called James up and said, hey, we can be on a record. And like, boom, there's there's a band <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden. Without that album, who knows if they ever would have committed to jamming again. You know, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah, you know, we over the years, uh, you know, we have some of those moments. Uh, there was one particular one when they were inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and you know, Lars, there's a big party and everything. And Lars and I kind sure. of the, towards the the wee hours of, of the morning, uh, <laughs> we're both kind of looking at each other, going like, "How the hell did all this happen?" It's, just, <laughs> it's kind of mind-boggling, you know, two kids in L.A. all of a sudden something happens and it just becomes right. this legendary thing it's it's pretty it, when you stop to think about it it's, it's kind of scary <laughs> <laughs> so to go back to metal massacre for but you have uh for but you have the idea for this compilation album uh to showcase some of the bands in the la area when you're putting it together in your head is it meant to be like a one-off thing I, I if i recall it was your like fanzine presents uh, the new Heavy Metal Review presents Metal Massacre. So was there a thought in your head like, hey, maybe this can be uh, of having the record label for this to be the catalyst to it? Or was it just sort of let's see what happens with this? And There was, was no yeah. no plan at all to have a record label. That was probably the last thing I really even thought of. I wasn't thinking of anything other than I wanted to help out the scene. Uh, I wanted to do something to try to expose these bands. And the only way I knew about it, and since I knew all these distributors from working in the record store, I asked them all. I said, hey, if I put together a compilation album of local LA heavy metal bands, would you sell it? And they all said, sure. So I had the opportunity to do it and, and the wherewithal to get it out there. They borrowed some money and had a little bit of money to scrape together every last penny I had. I, I was not didn't have any money whatsoever, and neither did my, yeah. my family. So they just pulled it together. That's why I never thought it was going to be anything other than a, just a one-off at that point, you know, the fancy was doing well, the record store was doing well. I was promoting shows in Los Angeles. I was 
working with the main uh, radio station, doing a metal show, supplying them with music. So I had a lot of things going on. I'd started working and writing for Kerrang. So it kind of oh, was wow, thinking yeah. that, I, that the journalism thing was going to be, right. that was going to be my thing in, in music and never in a million years thought the label would happen but yeah i ended up putting out the record and it did really well was well enough that i couldn't make any more and it was kind of a big mess finding people to help and yeah. eventually the local distributor green world said hey you seem like you know what's going on we know you don't have any money we'll offer you a pnd deal basically a pressing distribution deal if you find bands and bring them to us then we can manufacture and sell it for you that's when i thought oh right Okay, wow, I'll yeah. try that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny that your initial um, idea was, you know, maybe I'll go the journalism route. And then obviously it gets left behind for this new idea, this new opportunity. But then a couple of years ago, you have the opportunity to put out your book for the sake of heaviness. So in a way, it came full circle for you <laughs> with the uh, writing. Yeah, a little bit. I've, I've done some. I've done a lot of writing over the years. Uh, yeah. you know, people have asked me to do stuff for different magazines and articles, and I really enjoy doing it. Uh, it takes a lot of time, but, it, sure. but it's fun to do. Um, but in fairness, you know, I, I don't know how journalistic the book was on my part, because as you well know, you both of our friend Mark Eglinton was yeah. the guy who helped, helped write the sure, book. Yeah. He did probably the more journalistic part of it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it was still really super fun to do, and, and course, I'm really happy yeah. the way it came out. Yeah, it's great. And so just to kind of travel, uh, to go back to Metal Massacre there. So it comes out. Um, what was your, when you get the recording of Hit the Lights from Lars, do you remember what your reaction was? Were you, was it what you expected? Were you surprised? Did you think it was good? Did you think it was sort of, what, what was your reaction? Well, it's funny because it was, we got it basically the very last day. I told him, like, if you don't bring us the tape on this day when we're kind of putting it together to get <laughs> yeah. it mastered, then you're not on it. So he showed up at the last minute, and he had it on a cassette, and we had to bump <laughs> it up to to to, uh, to actual quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape, and nobody had any money. Thankfully, again, my friend John Carnarens was there, and he had 50 bucks, and that's what it cost. So we put it in there, and the first day, the first day I was just so stressed out about everything, and, and you know, they... they I don't even know if he played it that day because he had to bump it up and he kind of left all the tapes there and then they, right. they did the mastering and all that stuff. So I think the first time I might have heard it was was when the mastering, we got a copy of the mastering. And I was pleasantly surprised because honestly, I had no idea. I mean, yeah. he's a good friend of mine. I've never seen him play drums. I don't know who these <laughs> other people are on this band. They haven't played any live gigs. Right. But, you know, I, again, it was like I just needed people on there. And I was, you know, and obviously he's a friend of mine. So I'm like, sure, sure. If you put together a band. I'm totally into it. But I was pretty surprised. It was uh, a lot better, honestly, than I thought it was. Because who knows? I mean, <laughs> right, it yeah. way. It could have been yeah. a disaster. But, of course. but it ended up being pretty good. And, and they kind of had an okay career after that. So I think yeah, it was yeah, they did all right for themselves, I they guess. They did okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, it, what's funny about that song too is that they're not even really a full band yet. They bring Ron McGovney and Dave Mustaine into the picture, kind of after that recording. At least that's how the story goes. Dave, at least especially, um, and and then so it's not until after they have a a song on your album that they start playing their live shows. We're, I'm assuming you must have seen, if not all their early LA shows, uh, a good chunk of them. Yeah. So so. Yeah, well, that orig the original Metal Master, there was, we only made 2,500 of them, but yeah. we did end up using that version of Hit the Lights because when we reissued it, they, they redid it with Ron and, and uh, Dave. But we did put it out on our, our 
20th anniversary box set, the band was very nice to allow us awesome. to use the original version. From my recollection, it's just James playing guitar and bass and singing, obviously. Yeah. Lars on drums, and then Lars's friend Lloyd Grant played the right. lead. Yeah. So that was it in, on the very original version. So, right. so yeah, so the record comes out, and they form a band with, with Ron and, and Dave. So I didn't see the very first show, which it was somewhere in Orange County. I think it was either Radio City or Woodstock, one of those Orange County, California mm -hmm. clubs. But I did see the second gig, which bizarrely enough was them opening for Saxon yeah. at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And there's a pretty funny, there's, well, there's several funny stories about that night, but one of the funniest ones was, so, you know, there's, you know, in between bands, there's always, you know, music being played, the, the bands put together a tape of different music to play. Yeah. So Lars comes up starting to freak out because the, the Saxon guys were, were, you know, their road crew and their sound guy put together this tape, and it's all New Wave of Shavy Metal bands, Diamond Head. He comes freaking out. He's like, That's the, that was their set. It's like, you got to take this tape off. you got to take this tape off. You gotta, we can't have this happen. It's our set. So somehow we were able to change the music or something. <laughs> they ended up, of course, playing Diamond Head. And, and, of course, uh, yeah. What else did they play? Blitzkrieg by Blitzkrieg yeah. and, and Hit the Lights. I think they're the only original on there for sure. So I saw that one. And I saw them, I'd say, most of their L.A. shows, which yeah. sadly were – I mean, they were great. But the the audience wasn't there. The clubs thought they were a punk band, and they just they right. you know as well documented they just didn't have any audience really in L.A. That was about it. And it's funny because I, I so we're doing over here a, a Metal Blade Museum. Oh, awesome! Which I'm in the process of putting together here in Las Vegas. So one of my friends sent me a few. I had some old flyers, but one of my friends sent me all the old Metallica flyers. I didn't realize that Slayer opened for Metallica at least on one occasion in, in uh, really? Orange County. In LA. Yeah, I, I found this flyer. I was like, wow, I, I barely remember wow. that. And I thought they never did, and they weren't yeah. really, you know, th those two didn't really, Slayer came a little bit after Metallica had kind of moved to San right. Francisco. So it was, it was interesting that that, that show was there. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty legendary show. <laughs> wow. that, um, yeah, imagine that show back then. Um, well, that's that's the funny thing about that scene, though. As you, I, I mean, as you know, being there firsthand too, is that all the crossover. You know, you've heard the stories of, you know, when Carrie King was in Megadeth for like a hot moment, and you know, they they were just when you're part of that scene and you're kind of it's a small circle. You just all kind of, I feel like it, they all ran into each other at one point or the other. But it's amazing how it exploded into what it did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, look, back then, we were just a bunch of kids that loved the music. Nobody ever thought in a million years anything would ever, be, would ever come of this. But since right. we're all into it, we would all, you know, all of us would party, you know, every weekend. we all go to the Troubadour and see whoever was playing. And then most of the time, we'd end up at uh, Betsy from Bitch's mom's house because she lived close yeah. by. And there's tons of parties with Armored Saint and Metallica. I mean, Armored Saint and Metallica were the two bands that really got along the best because they were – both very similar in terms of what they're, you know, they're into European metal and right, all this yeah. sort of stuff. And they got along great too. They, they did a bunch of shows together while Metallica was, was still here in LA, but it was a fun time back then. Cause we were just all dumb young kids just having yeah. a great time watching music and not thinking it would ever be anything other than, you know, it just was a, a moment in time, I guess. Sure. So when they made the decision to ultimately relocate to San Francisco, that was not a surprise to you. You felt, you knew that that was more of like their home base there, but in terms of audience reaction, I know Cliff well, Burton obviously played a huge role 
in that uh, relocation as well. Yeah, I mean, sort of as the story goes, uh, yeah. we did a Metal Massacre show in San Francisco. One of the bands fell out. I asked the Metallica guys, do you want to come up? And they said, sure. And we didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I'd been to San Francisco a few times. They had, I love the scene up there. I love the X in the Skies and right. all that stuff that was happening there. And it felt, you know, as much as I loved LA and the scene there, just San Francisco felt a little bit more, you know, heavier. And, yeah. But I didn't know what to make of it. You know, we did the Metal Massacre show. We sold a few hundred tickets. And I thought, well, we'll just see, see how it goes. And Metallica comes up there, and oh my gosh, the first band was one of the worst bands ever. The famous story where everybody turns their back to them, they're so bad. And the, and the Metallica comes up, and the audience went crazy. I mean, they had never played in front of an audience that went crazy like this. They, they Even they were kind of freaked out. It was unbelievable. So they had played a few more shows up there, and it, you could feel that, that they were way more welcomed up there yeah. than they were in LA. And then, of course, the, you know, the you know story when Lars said, "Hey, we're, we need we're looking for a bass player because you know we like we love Rom, but we're getting better as musicians, and we kind of feel we should upgrade the bass." I, and I said, "Well, there's this band from from uh, Northern California, got Trauma, whose bass player is unbelievable. They were on Metal Massacre Two, Trauma. And yeah. That was Cliff's band, and, and they'd played a show at the Troubadour as a showcase, and the band was okay, but Cliff was unbelievable. I mean, he was off to an island unto himself in that band. Right. So I mentioned that to." So Lars, and sure enough, you know, and I said, they're playing down here again in a couple of weeks. And sure enough, Lars and James came. And I don't know how far into the show. It could have been one or two songs, but Lars said, that guy's going to be on your bass player. Wow, and again, yeah. Lars being Lars, <laughs> they made that happen. And, you know, when Cliff said, I'll do it, but you have to move up here, I think the guys were telling me, like, fine, we don't, yeah. we don't mind moving up there. They had a much sure. better response there anyway. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. You also played a role in hooking Jason Newsett up with the band when after Cliff's passing. Yeah, that was the other one where where Lars called me up after a while, and you know, with the, the we need a new bass player thing. Yeah. Of course, the first guy I mentioned is Joey Vera from Marvin Saint. Right, he's an amazing bass player. Yeah. And Lars said they already asked me when he didn't want to do it because at that point both bands were almost on the same level. Like Armored Saint actually headlined over Metallica at the Palladium in LA when they did the tour together. So they're both kind of on the same path and Metallica wasn't quite Metallica yet. They're almost right. there. And you know, Joey grew up with all these guys. So, sure. so, he didn't do yeah. it. so when he said no, I said, well, I think I have the perfect guy. Of course, you know, I'm throwing possibly throwing away at that point. Flotsam was one of our big new bands and they yeah. had done really well. But, I knew Jason was a massive, massive Metallica fan, and he was such a great bass player and just a, just a great guy. I thought he would be perfect for that band. So I mentioned it to Lars, and at the same time, also Michael Alago, who signed them to right. Electric, Metallica to Electric, also was into Flotsam and Jetsam, and he mentioned him uh, right around the same time. So he got two good endorse endorsements, and then the next thing I know, a couple weeks later, I ran into, into I think I ran into James Sawyer. He said, I think your guy's going to be our bass player. I'm like, oh, great. So, yeah. So, yeah. And then that, uh, that's how that, that came about. So, your um, first re, uh, interaction was obviously with Lars. Do you remember um, sort of when you met James for the first time? And Sure. I think I met him for the first time, honestly, at the Saxon show, yeah. uh, I believe. And I would say the first four or five times I was around him at, at gigs or whatever, he might have said 10 words. He was crazy yeah. shy. So I didn't yeah. really, really spend much time with him at that point because, you know, I was, you know, largest, but I talked to him a few times. We'd, we'd see each other at, you know, gigs and stuff, but really 
didn't have very many conversations with him. Yeah. It wasn't really until they moved to San Francisco and, and kind of got things happening that I was able to spend, you know, some more time with them. And he had kind of, I don't want to say come out of the shell. Well, I guess come out of the shell a little, a little bit more. Right. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, look, all those guys in that band, I, I've been friends with them, friends first before anything else yeah. since day one. And they've always been great. They've always treated me great. Uh, they, as far as I'm concerned, they, you know, for, for guys at that level, they have their feet pretty firmly planted on the ground. There's not, not a lot of ego or anything. And, and, uh, they, I think they, they you know, they've always treated me and, and everybody else around the inner circle that was around the early days and, you know, just, a, just first class people, all, all of them, uh, along the line and, and definitely Cliff included, who was a, a phenomenal human being. I mean that's great to hear, and it, that as a fan, to, you know, to like somebody like me, that definitely comes across, and I think that's uh, part of the appeal of the band, part of the reason why one they're so popular, and two why they have this longevity is because there's an honesty and uh, a humbleness to them that uh, you know even when they're on Howard Stern or something like that, they they always downplay <laughs> how good they are, you know. Uh, Oh yeah, you know we make mistakes all the time. We're not that great musicians, you know, and just kind of keep themselves grounded in any way that they can, all things considered. Yeah, and they're still fans, you know. They, they, we yeah. all were fans in, in, in the early days, and and they've kept that instilled in them. You know, they're still fans. They still like to listen to new music. They still love to go back to listen to the old music that they grew up on. I mean, that's that's always whatever album they've made. And you know, there's a lot of controversy over you know different albums they've made and stuff. But really, what it is, they're making the albums for themselves and for not anybody else. And they're just whatever the album sounds like is what they're into at the moment. And that's why it's really fascinating that they still re remain fans. I remember when they were doing Death Magnetic, or when they're writing and about to record Death Magnetic, Lars called me and said, hey, can you send me a bunch of the New Wave of Shaving Metal stuff? Because I guess he and James had just kind of lost it over the years. They didn't have yeah. stuff. So I sent them you know, a bunch of stuff because they wanted to go back to their roots again and really kind of, you know, get the influence from what they what what they started out as which obviously oh, yeah. came into the last record which i i still think is one of their best ever actually yeah i agree i think hardwired to me just took everything that they do well and kind of put it in a blender you from the 80s 90s just it you know it has the thrash has the groove has the melody just it, and it just is superbly produced and i'm a really big fan of hardwired yeah, me too. And, and it's it, it's really another testament to how, how great those guys are. I mean, look, they're one of the biggest bands in the world. And for them to go back and make a really aggressive, heavy record with from their early roots and just say, we're going to do this, we don't care. And, yeah. you know, it, it's it's legit. It's not like, a, oh, these old guys trying to recapture their youth. I mean, it's, <laughs> right, yeah. it's a legit classic heavy metal album and those because they're into it. I mean, they're totally into yeah. it. So it's Metallica obviously ended up eventually on Megaforce Records and then eventually with Michael Lago, who you mentioned before, they signed to Elektra. Was there ever any talks between you guys about um, them doing anything with you on Metal Blade or pre-Metal Blade? Or uh, was it just more like, hey, let's not get, you know, let's not mix friendship with business too much? Or was it just just never happened? No. No, it just, it never happened for money monetary reasons. Basically, I mean, they yeah. had a deal where they could go into the studio while they're still in LA and make a record for like ten grand. Yeah, well, I didn't have ten grand. The band didn't right. have ten grand. Nobody we knew yeah. had ten grand, so <laughs> it just never happened. And even when the demos came out, 
you know, I, I mean, I, it was so early in the game. I didn't have any money to, to be able to do anything with them. So we talked right. about it a lot and that was kind of their, uh, you know, obviously it would have made sense, Yeah. but nobody had any money. They didn't have any money. I didn't have any money and, and <laughs> no one around us had any money. So that's the only reason it never happened. So, but it, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I, people ask me, do you regret that or anything? I said, I mean, no, it's, I mean, yeah. I, I, I can't complain at all about the way everything's gone for me so it's uh, it's all good well i was gonna say it worked out i feel like for everybody in the end metal blade obviously has an incredible history some of my all-time favorite artists have passed through your label um from you know the more old school like uh metallica slayer arm insane to more to newer bands like the black dahlia murder amon or marth um it, metal blade just continues to break great bands from year to year decade to decade i i have to ask like what do you is there a certain thing you look for when signing new bands or is it just just something that you know something that you feel when you hear it it's all gut feeling it, yeah. it's all gut feeling there really is any, nothing else i mean i could put something on and tell within five seconds whether i would want to work with it or not i just pure pure gut feeling i mean there's certain things that you look for like you know you want to have a band that is doing something a little bit different that they don't sound like everybody else. Right. You know, you don't want to sign, you know, 10 bands that sound like a Monomarth or Black Dahlia. So it's going to be a little bit sure. different, but there really is no formula. It's just if I put something on and, and something just hits me as, and I'm still just a fan and that's, you know, my basis of everything. It's still as a fan, I go, Ooh, that's really cool. And yeah. maybe we can work with that. And that's, that's really where it comes from. Otherwise there's no zero formula, zero, anything. <laughs> it's <just> all gut <laughs> reaction. <laughs> But I mean, that's, that must be the secret ingredient. You know, you as a fan know what you would like to listen to. And there's an, a, a, an audience out there that will agree with you. Yeah, I'm just lucky that what I like, other people seem to like too. And that's yeah. really kind of the basis of it. It's, thankfully, my taste seems to <laughs> work well with what everybody else does. <laughs> so I'm lucky with that. Well, just to give a couple Metal Blade records a shout out. The Verminous by Black Dahlia Murder and the new one from Armored St. Punch in the Sky. I, I would got to be two of my favorite albums all year. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really happy with the Armored Saint record. It's uh, right now. It looks like it's going to be their biggest record, maybe of all time. I mean, we just debuted yeah. number twelve in the German chart, number thirty-three awesome. on the on the Billboard Top 200 in the U.S. And the numbers are amazing. And I mean, I love those guys. They're some of the nicest guys on the planet. They're really close friends of mine, and I've always rooted for them because they, you know, they've had their share of of bad luck over the years, obviously. But but right. it's kind of a, a nice like. A nice thing now that this record's done so well and it's a really great record and yeah it's good hopefully someday they can tour <laughs> <laughs> that would be great i mean i i will definitely begin my ticket if they can make it back out on the road sometime soon that one's fantastic i, I had john bush on the podcast recently to talk about him, about his metallic connections and could not meet a nicer guy uh so i'll definitely well deserved I, i'm curious if there's any new bands out there right now that are really exciting you on metal blade or uh elsewhere yeah there's there's a few i mean it's it, the, the, kind of the, part of the problem with um the way the music industry these days it just takes so long to develop bands now and just it's yeah. such a different character i mean you know we were having bands like a band like cattle decapitation for example which you know they're just now hitting it big and you know, almost 20 yeah. years into their career <laughs> so it takes a long time but there, there's a few i mean there's a band called visigoth that we have on our label that we've done a couple records with from salt yeah. lake city and it's old school and familiar Judas with them, yeah. priest iron maiden type stuff i love them the, 
The two guitar players are amazing. The singer is amazing. So I really, really like them. Uh, I'm hoping for, for, for more good stuff from them. I know they're like everybody else. They're working on material. There's a really right. cool band on, on our subsidiary label called Blacklight Media that my friend, celebrity chef, <laughs> Chris Santos, one's called Blacklight nice. Media. And it's a band called Gozu. That's kind of a, I guess, stoner rockish sort of thing, but, cool. uh, but they're, they're super, super cool. And, and there's another band that we've had again for quite a while that's starting to, to hopefully get to the next level. It's called the Legion, A-L-L-E-G-E-O-N. Weird yeah. spelling and pronunciation, <laughs> but, but they're super cool. They just did a, a cover of Roundabout by Yes. Oh, nice. It's amazing. They've got really uh, a lot of great reactions. So, so there's, awesome. three, we, there's three new things. There's, there's a bunch of new stuff out there, but those are three things off the top of my head that I'm pretty excited about. Nice. Yeah, I've heard the Rainbow cover. It's phenomenal. It's really well done. Just super progressive, groovy, brutal metal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those guys are incredible musicians, too. A few quick questions before we wrap up. Favorite Metallica album? Ride the Lightning. What is it about the album that makes it your favorite so, in the catalog? So I have a very controversial view of... of, <laughs> of uh, my favorite Metallica records. So one of my least favorite is the first album only because I'm not a big fan of James's voice. I mean, he, yeah. I, he admits it. He couldn't sing at that point. So right. he was trying. So on ride the lightning, it, it, everything kind of came together. The songwriting became a little bit more mature and the musicianship was better. Obviously the production was better. Yeah. And that was when you really felt James was, was, was getting comfortable with, with his voice. Sure. And it kind of had that now legendary kind of, you know, growl that, that he's got. So I love that record. You know, it's got creeping death and trapped under ice and fate. Yeah. so many, I mean, every song on that record is a classic except for escape, but that's okay. <laughs> Which I love that song though. I do love that song. I know it's James pretty... would disagree with me, judging by interviews, but... <laughs> oh, no. Well, it, it's, it's great, because when they did uh, the first Orion Festival, you know, they were yeah. playing the album in its entirety, so I walked up to James and said, so, you're going to play with tonight? <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, I guess. Like, I it was just hysterical. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I love that record. Favorite Metallica song? Oh, that's always tough. I mean, right. my go-to is Creeping Death, which I'm... I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep. It's been my favorite song of theirs probably forever. Yeah. But there's so many good songs. But I'll tell you, it, 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 it's not there yet. But it's vying. It's, it's definitely in my top five. Is spit out the bone. I wow, freaking yeah. worship that song. Yeah. I think when it, when I first got the record, I might have listened to that song a hundred times in a row, over and over again. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> it's a great. Um... I mean, I, I think there is a, a, a percentage of fans that thought Metallica would never play in that style again, at least like in the mid 90s, you know, and then they came back with that. And, but it's it feels modern and relevant and fresh and not like you were saying before, it doesn't feel like a rehash at all. And that song, I think, is probably the closest to, you know, the 80s material in terms of its progressiveness. It's, you know, the thrash tempo, but it doesn't feel like a retro throwback. No, not at all. It's it's very fresh, and to me, it's like it's the perfect song. Yeah, everything about it the, the 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 lyrical subject matter, the way he's singing it, the progressive parts, the the change that are absolutely brilliant, the intensity of it, the leads are phenomenal. It's like there's really nothing, not one note on that song that, that to me isn't like a, a literally a perfect heavy metal song. So yeah, yeah I love it. all right, I have one more tough one for you. Well, maybe two more if you have the time. 
one yeah. more tough one. Uh, do you you've seen you've seen them live tons of times, and you obviously come at it with a different perspective as a fan and as a friend of the band. And I'm curious, do you have a favorite concert that you've seen of theirs? Does one stand out as just like wow, they were on fire that night, or yeah, just people a cool ask moment. me that, and they're always really good. I mean, it's, it's right. hard to really pick one. I mean, I've seen them, I think, close to 300 times now, <laughs> and. I'll give you. I, I'm not going to give you one, but I give you three real quick ones just because awesome. each one has a different, a different a feel to it. So right. one is is San Diego on the Death Magnetic tour, and that's a bit of a selfish one for me because number one they're on fire, but I went backstage to say hi before the show, and they were you know doing doing the set list, and this was back when they were probably doing five or six different songs a night, so the set list was like a whole thing. They had a hundred songs they could choose from to, to yeah. fit in these five spots. So I walk back and they're kind of hemming and hawing like Lars and James are kind of arguing both sets. <laughs> and James goes, "Why don't you let Brian pick the songs?" So Lars like, "Sure." So I go, "Really? Okay, cool." So I picked the songs. I think they played three of the five. So awesome. I, you know, they gave me a little shout out, which they do a lot, which is obviously really super cool. But yeah. I was that was pretty pretty amazing. Um, the second one. What were the songs? Do you remember? Uh, I'm trying to remember now. It was. It was like stuff, old, old stuff. Yeah. Um, escape, escape, escape. <laughs> no, no, no. It was like, you know, I think Metal Militia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I'm trying to remember. Something else off of, uh, off of, oh, uh, probably Disposable Heroes. Nice, yeah. You know, stuff that they, I picked up with the stuff they don't normally play. Yeah, of course. So the second one would be another one where, um, where they let me pick songs and I, and I asked them to play Trapped on Your Eyes. Which at that point they hadn't played for like 18 years. This is in oh, Miami wow, yeah. and Tampa, two shows. So I went to Miami. They didn't play it then, but they played it in Tampa. And the Tampa show was, they were totally on fire. It was an amazing show. And then they played that. Awesome. I couldn't believe it. But I, I bought the, you know, you can buy the, the audio of all yeah. their concerts. So I yeah, bought yeah. the audio and listened back to it. And I realized that that's in a pitch that James, this is, that show is the very end of a run, too. Uh, and that weekend was crazy. I spent like four days with those guys in Florida, and, and I have crazy fun stories about that. But anyway, um, uh, so so they played that. And I listened to it back, and I, I could hear him struggling a little bit. But what made me really happy is they actually kind of put it in their set quite often after that, after not playing it for, for so many years. I did talk to James and apologize to, to picking that song because I knew it was the end of their two-week run. His voice was he's like, ah, it's fine. And then the third one, was when they played uh, Webster Hall in, in New York on the pre yeah. uh, the, the pre hardwired stuff. Yeah. And the reason why that show stood out to me was so so I've seen I I, I apartment in New York. I spent a lot of well, used to spend a lot of time in New York when you could. Um, and I've seen. <laughs> I wrote outside of, New York, so I get it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, you yeah. know. So I uh, so I've seen countless shows at Webster Hall, and within six months prior to seeing Metallica, there I've probably seen. I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten shows with a lot of our bands. And and seeing Metallica there, they are so far above every other band live-wise. Yeah. It really came into focus there because you, know, you see them on stages and arenas and all this big stuff. And, yeah, they're always awesome and always great. But when you see them in a setting like that, how amazing they are live, Yeah, it's like they're, you know, at the top of a mountain. Everybody else is, you know, way below, not even not even in their stratosphere. That, that yeah. just really blew me away because 
like I said, I, that was when I was like, oh my God, these guys are so incredible because I've seen other bands here that I thought were great. Those shows were great, but this band is on some other level. And that's yeah. a, a testament to why they are who they are and where they are. A lot of people said that about the big four shows too, and not to knock any of those bands because I love them all, but a lot of people be like, I love Anthrax. The Megadeth came out. I love Anthrax. Since Slayer came out, I... Or I said it. I, did I say Anthrax twice? <laughs> anthrax came. I love Anthrax. Megadeth comes. I love Megadeth. Uh, Slayer comes. I love Slayer. But then when Metallica came out, you're like, all right, this is why they're the biggest band in the world. You know, just yeah. it's another level. Yep. Um. All right. One final one, if you don't mind. Uh. Obviously, I know there's probably a lot of stories that you don't want to share. But is there a favorite story of yours that you'd be willing to share on the podcast? Yeah, so many. Uh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I'm so, sure some James well, and Lars don't want you to share. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't do. I won't do that. But I'll tell you. Yeah. I, I will tell you one that I think I can't remember if I talked about it in in my. I'm doing a second book, by the way, which is kind oh, of more nice. in depth stories and the whole Metallica chapter where I talk about oh, some of the, some awesome. of the fun times with them. Uh, although I have to get it approved by them first. But um, <laughs> so there's one. So I talked about the the, the show in, in Tampa and spending four or five days with them in Miami. So. I'll give you, this is a, a super fun uh, story. It was really pretty funny. And just kind of is a test with who, who these guys are. Yeah. So I met up with them. I used to have a place in Miami, so I flew down there and met up with them. I think it was two nights before the Miami show. They were just kind of camping down there for a few days. So yeah. I meet up with them. It was Lars, Robert, Lars' assistant, Robert's assistant, and somebody who worked at their South American company. And they're just having drinks. And we had some drinks. And, and you know, it was getting a, a little bit late at the at the hotel they were staying at. They sure. said, hey, Tommy Lee's club is right around the corner. Why don't we go over there? So I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? So we get, you know, we, we get up and we walk around the corner. And this is, it's, I forget what time of year it was, but it was hot. It wasn't summertime. It was like maybe April or May or something. Yeah. So it was warm. So we're just all wearing je um, either jeans or shorts and T-shirts. So so we walk up to the club, and there's these two bouncers outside. They were kind of playing some, you know, um music inside. These two bouncers <laughs> outside just look at us and just shake their heads like, nope. And we're like, okay. I mean, you know, and they're not yeah. going to go, hey, do you know who we are or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. so we literally walked down the street to this little uh, patio bar and just drank, you know, for a few more, a few, a few, a, a while longer and had a great time. It was super fun. So a couple nights later, we end up at some big famous hotel. They had a whole, like, little party for the Metallica and the crew and everything. So we're there and talking to people and. The next thing you know, uh, Lars said, hey, we're going to Tommy Lee's club. I said, wait, didn't we try to do this the other night? <laughs> I said, yeah, so apparently there's a there's a celebrity wrangler down there that heard about it and and, and <laughs> talked to the club. And club oh, of course, the club's horrified. <laughs> like, no, oh, whatever, whatever. <laughs> so so we uh, – so I'm like, all right, so I guess we're going there. So I was in like one of the last cabs to, to get yeah. there. So I missed the, the interim scene, but I was with my friend Ray from Fate's Warning. Yeah. He was down there with us. So he was in like one of the first cabs. So apparently they, they roll up <laughs> and they walk in. It's again, it's the oomph, oomph, oomph. And they walk in and there's a whole VIP area. And they literally threw everybody out of this VIP area. It was like, what's going on? They threw everybody out. <laughs> the music changed to, you know, Thin Lizzy and Purple and 70s music. And it was pretty funny. By the time I got there, I was kind of like, I, it had already changed. So I, I missed all of that. But it was awesome. pretty funny. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty funny. But again, it just kind of shows you, you know, those guys, you know, like I said, they could have gone, you know, who we are. Like, who? All right, yeah. we can't go in. We'll just right. go somewhere else. No, no, you know. But that was, that was a fun, that was a fun, that was a fun little trip for sure. That's awesome. 
Well, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. Um, where can everybody find you online? And any, please plug anything that you wish to plug. Yeah, well, you can go to MetalBlade.com to get uh, all of our good stuff there and all the, the Metal Blade socials. Right. You can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, LinkedIn. Everything's all at Brian Slagle. So awesome. hit me up on there and, uh, yeah, follow me and uh, all that good stuff. I, I enjoy social media, so feel free to say hi. <laughs> Great. There will be a, a link to in the episode description to all that good stuff so you can – do an easy click and find Brian and of course metal blade records, Brian, thank you again. This was great. I had a blast and I hope you can come back sometime and, uh, tell more stories and just, you know, we can just shoot the shit about metal. Yeah. Anytime, man. I'm, I'm all for it. Thanks. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Thanks, man. I want to thank Brian Slagel for coming on Metallicast. Super nice guy. Awesome interview. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed conducting it. So thank you, Brian. Hopefully he can come back on at some point in the future to talk about Metallica and just metal in general. Please check out MetalBlade.com and follow him on social media, the links to which are in the episode description, so it's an easy click away for all of you in the Metallica Asmodisha. And if you have not yet read his book For the Sake of Heaviness, I highly recommend it. It's a great read. Please also follow Metallicast on social media at MetallicastBot on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please download, subscribe, and leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All that stuff goes a long way to helping the podcast grow, which helps me get great guests like Brian Slagel on future episodes. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, middle up your ass. Yeah. Fans not experts.